I'm Liam Printer, and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello, welcome to The Motivated Classroom podcast. I hope everyone is doing well. I hope your school year has started off okay. As we're getting into these first few weeks, I'm certainly getting lots of reminders about how tiring it can be getting used to those early mornings again. But in general, smiling and enjoying having the, the students back in the classroom, even though can't see their faces because of the masks. Uh, I really hope we get to the end of this at some stage and we're not in masks forever. Oh, And of course, like most weeks, I want to say a massive thank you just to all of you guys for downloading and listening. I really appreciate it. I love that you share it out with your colleagues and your friends. And it's amazing just how far reaching the podcast is getting. I had a colleague of mine come up to me and say her friend who's a teacher from Colombia about working in, I think she said the Philippines, listening to the podcast and was like, oh, do you work with Liam Brinter in the Motivated Classroom? So it's really funny just to see how far it's gone. So thank you for continuing to share. Now, of course, we must start today with our little bit of Irish. So today the word is ufosuk. Ufosuk. It actually means awful or terrible. You know, when something is really bad, it's like, oh, that's awful. And I love the word because for me, it's there's a bit of onomatopoeia there. It kind of sounds a bit like the word awful or terrible. It has that sound like ufosuk, like it's got strong sound to it. So there you go. If someone says something's ufosuk, it's terrible or awful. And of course, Guramil uh, Mahagav to you guys, you patrons who are listening right now, the 44 of you. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast every month. My caffeine and crisp stocks are looking well. I really appreciate it. So today, finally, I'm going to get around to talking about implicit and explicit learning, meaning versus form, implicit and explicit knowledge, all of these things that are being bandied around and thrown around when we talk about language learning and linguistics and applied linguistics, the the teaching of linguistics. So I'm going to try and get into these a little bit today, but please don't be scared off. It's all going to be about teaching at the end of the day and just a few of my takes on it. So first and foremost, I think it's important to talk a little bit about what is implicit and explicit knowledge or what do we mean by implicit and explicit learning or what do we mean by implicit and explicit acquisition or learning of language. All of these things are thrown around a little bit, so it's important to think about them. Implicit, from my understanding of what I've read and what I've listened to, essentially, is the things that go into our heads naturally, that we don't really realise we're learning these things, they just kind of go in. So in the language acquisition classroom, of course, this happens lots and lots because we're giving loads of comprehensible input and students are acquiring new words, new phrases, new terms without really ever knowing how that went in. That's implicit. It kind of happens naturally. The explicit stuff is when we're talking about the knowledge that the students have around the language. So being able to call out the words that they are like, this is a pronoun, this is the indirect object pronoun, that's the subjunctive mood. These are metalinguistic terms that students can use this. Learning about the language, the mechanics of the language, being able to verbalise the rules and the patterns that they see. Now, I'm not saying that that is futile, that that is a waste of time, that we can know that this is a pronoun and this is a verb. I think these things are very, very useful and good to know. However, I would definitely be more in the camp that I feel like implicit knowledge and learning through acquisition as opposed to sitting down and learning rules is a much more effective way of motivating our students 
and getting them involved from the beginning. For me, the explicit stuff comes in later. Once they've already got a few years of acquisition and lots of comprehensible input under their belts, we can now start to talk a little bit more about the mechanics of the language. And those students who are really interested in the linguistic side can start to learn more of it. But at the beginning, surely it's got to be about communicating and those linguistic terms can come later. But we'll we'll come back to that. Now, some of the big arguments in the second language acquisition field, which is for me kind of bizarre that it's still called SLA, second language acquisition, because for many people, language acquisition is their third or fourth or fifth. And I don't know if we should just call it language acquisition research anyway. That's for another day. But it is called SLA, second language acquisition research, the whole field. And It's important to kind of note that some researchers think that this explicit and implicit knowledge are completely separate and different, like Stephen Krashen, for example. And there's others who kind of think that they are a little bit linked. And Dr. Florentia Henshaw, in her videos, she goes over this really well. If you haven't checked out her YouTube channel, go and check it out. Dr. Florencia Henshaw, amazing little 10 minute videos from which I learned loads of stuff that I'm going to be sharing today. And I think that's important as well to put in as a caveat. I am a language teacher. I speak six languages. I've learned lots of languages. I studied languages at university. I've done a doctorate in language acquisition and motivation. But my knowledge of linguistics and second language acquisition research until very recently, I think, was quite basic, actually. There was not very much of it in my degree. There was probably a bit more in my postgraduate diploma, my professional diploma in education when I trained to be a French and Spanish teacher. There was a bit more about linguistics and how language works and how we acquire language. But really, if I'm being really honest, you know, we read around some of this stuff, but I don't really feel like I knew it that well. So I'm learning as I'm going too. I'm learning about language acquisition. I'm learning on how the brain works and how we acquire languages. And thanks to all those authors and people who produce videos like Dr. Florencia Henshaw, I can learn a lot more about it too and I can start to relate it to other things I've read. So some of this is from Dr. Henshaw's videos and others are for things from things I've read and from books that I've read in language acquisition and reading and looking at those videos actually really made me think back to when I did train to be a teacher first and I did my first undergraduate in French and Spanish about a lot of these books and things I came across. So to go back and what we were saying, so Krashen thinks that these are quite separate, implicit and explicit. And then we have what's called the weak interface. And there's researchers here who say that essentially they are different, but they're kind of related and one might influence the other, that keyword being might. And Dr. Angel talks about this in her videos too, where there's a focus on the form, you know, maybe correcting the little grammar mistakes, but not just all we do is grammar exercises. And I'll come back to that a little bit more. And then there are some researchers who say the language learning is essentially like any other skill. Practice makes perfect. But actually, the vast majority of second language acquisition researchers and scholars don't sign up to this. And I am in that camp for sure. I do not think learning a language is just like any other skill. I think it's an entirely complex thing. And if you listen back to that episode uh, with Dr. Bill Van Patten and Dr. Karen Lichtman, they talk about this over and over again. The constructing language is some crazy complex process that goes on in our heads. And Dr. Lichtman gave that lovely example of her daughter and the words that she's learning and she had them all in a spreadsheet. And the fact that there was a huge amount of time when she was producing very little language and 
um, Dr. Lickman was getting very annoyed and kind of like, why isn't she saying more things? You know, I'm a language acquisition professional. What's going on? And then all of a sudden, all these words were coming out in phrases and sentences, meaning that there was loads of language being constructed in her little girl's head. But it takes time for it to come out and you're putting it all together like a jigsaw. So it's a very complex thing. I do not sign up to and believe that language learning is just like any other skill. Practice makes perfect. It is much more complex than that. And it is different to other subjects. It's not like humanities. It's not like biology. It's not like geography. It's different. And that's why Dr. Van Patten was talking about maybe we need a totally different set of criteria and rubrics and assessments around language acquisition because what we have, we're just applying what we do for history and geography and science and mathematics to languages, but it's entirely different. It's something totally different. It's something we learn from right from the day we come out of the womb and that we are babies and we're acquiring language and all those experiences of learning other languages help us with the new one. So it's so complex. We can't just say it's like a skill and practice makes perfect. Now, even those researchers who say that it is like a skill and practice makes perfect, who I don't agree with, um, for they even would sign up to the fact that most of language acquisition and your proficiency is implicit that most of it you just get without sitting down and learning it. And we, of course, know that from our first language. And as you become more advanced in a language and you go to a country and you're learning about the language all the time, you're picking stuff up constantly without learning it. Now, in school, it can be slightly different. But what's kind of weird and interesting and a bit sad, I feel, is that in general, now many of you listening to this podcast may not fit into this box, but in general, languages are still taught in the way that we think we should teach the grammar rules first and then the communication can come later, which for me is real madness. I don't see any logic in that. Like if you were thinking about learning the guitar, for example, or learning the piano or learning to play basketball and all you did was in your guitar lessons, you just learned the chords and nothing like you just learned each one of the notes and how it worked and how they work together. But you never actually put them together into a song and you're never given that opportunity. And it was just chord after chord, like reloads of drills of just doing the chords. Well, one, you'd be super bored. And two, then when suddenly you're told right now, put all that together into a song, you'd be like, what? I, how am I supposed to do that? And now I'm on the spot because you're saying I know all the chords and I've got to produce them into this lovely set of melody. No, you need to learn the songs as you're going and you might learn a couple of the chords that help you out with the song, but you're not going to learn them all and then try and start to communicate or learn them in a specific order. Oh, you only know the chord of G, so we can only play songs in that. No, you need to learn different ways of going about it. Now that's, And I know this is funny now because I'm talking about a skill like learning the guitar, but I don't think languages is like that. It's much more complex. But it's important to think of the boredom aspect too, if we're just doing loads of grammar drills and then saying, OK, now try and communicate with those. Now, one of the things that language acquisition researchers do agree on in the main that I can see pretty much everyone seems to agree on this. And as Dr. Bill Van Patten said, essentially now we can call this a fact. There is a natural order in the way that we acquire languages and language structures. Dr. Stephen Krashen's hypothesis from way back in the 80s is now essentially a fact, according to most of the language acquisition researchers that I'm listening to and reading to for sure. There is a developmental sequence. Patsy Lightbound talks about this in her books quite a lot. She calls them this developmental sequence. And 
Why is it important to know that? Well, it's important to know that there is a natural order because we need to change our expectations in the classrooms and what we're expecting students to do because there is a natural order. And I think it's summed up really well in that paper by Bill Van Patten and Karen Lichtman about crashing 40 years later when they talk about that curve, the U-shaped curve, the fact that sometimes when you are acquiring a language, you'll get things right at the beginning and everything is right because you've heard it. And then you start to hear lots and lots of other things and you start to put a rule on that and think, well, if all the other verbs end in ED in the past, then they almost end like that. So it must be I swammed and it must be I gold. And then you listen and hear much more and then you change it and back to being accurate again. And we see that this happens in the second language acquisition classroom too, our classrooms that we teach in. That we might have a lot of accuracy and then there might be lots of inaccuracy and then the accuracy comes back with more input. So it's important for us as teachers to know that. So if implicit knowledge and implicit acquisition of the structures and the words and the terms is king or queen of the language acquisition world that we are all in, how do we do that then? We do it through loads of compelling, interesting, comprehensible inputs. That is how we're going to get all that acquisition. Now, that is not to say that we can never, ever talk about grammar and focus a little bit on the form, the way the word is or how it ends or But we need to focus on that when it helps us with communication. So we should be thinking about what is it we're trying to communicate and then we can figure out the how to do that as opposed to going, here's how you do it and now you can have a go at it. So I think that's really important. We need to focus on flooding the students with loads of comprehensible inputs in a compelling, interesting way that provides them with autonomy, not just learning random sentences or paragraphs or reading little paragraphs about something totally separated from their lives about, you know, I always give this example when I was growing up about learning about Pierre, who used to go and eat his baguette in have a croissant and then his jus d'orange in, you know, in Paris and all the stereotypes thrown into one as if this was somehow going to be interesting to me as a 13 year old. I couldn't care less about Pierre and this little text I'm reading and a little picture or a caricature of some random person who you know nothing about. I much preferred to have learned about my classmates and what funny things they eat or the things they dislike. And then later we can learn more about the, you know, it can be compared and say, well, oh, you guys all have cereal. But did you know that in, in France, it's actually really common not to have much cereal. It's more common to just have something really simple like a coffee and maybe a croissant and that that might be it. And has anyone ever done that? Have you been there? Have you seen that? But get the input from the students first and what's interesting in their lives. Give them the comprehensible input, the compelling, interesting stuff. And then we can relate it to the culture. And of course, as they get older, we can bring in more cultural aspects and more interesting things. But to hook students in, we need to give them autonomy. And that's why these co-created stories or invisible characters or the movie talks or the picture talks, all of these CI approaches they work so well because the students have some autonomy and they feel like they can put some of their life into the things that they're learning. So for me, that's really so important. Now, the other thing we hear talked about a lot is form versus meaning. Which camp are you in? Do you think meaning is more important or form? Do you focus on form or focus on meaning? And I thought Dr. Henshaw's video on this was excellent. It really, really was excellent. And she talks about the fact that there is form, singular, and then forms with an S. 
and they are quite different. That it is okay now and again to focus on form, which essentially is just given those little bits of input to let people know where their S should go here and O should go here. I kind of heard it as more to do with the pop up grammar. But when we focus on forms, plural with the S, that is essentially our whole curriculum and our whole language class is built around grammar and structures and patterns and rules. And we do all of them structurally one by one in that structure that our textbooks tell us. And this is something that we need to get away from. And and she gives this lovely quote from Longley and Hillman in 2019, saying the dominance of grammar based approaches and learning language intentionally continues despite theoretical and empirical evidence suggesting they're ill conceived. So really important. So this dominance of having a grammar based approach where that is the foundation and learning language like in this intentional way, step by step with present tense, then the present perfect, then we'll do a bit of past, you know, and always focusing on the grammar, the forms, and now we'll try and communicate. It's ill-conceived and the language acquisition world agrees on this. And, and they say then later in this piece, they say that to teach these isolated grammar structures first for communication later is to essentially put the cart before the horse, which I loved. And, and I'd not come across that quote before. So thank you, Dr. Henshaw, for that. That was excellent. And I think, you know, she sums it up really well. And she says, we need to start with what we're trying to communicate and then see how we can do it. And we should not have this predetermined list of structures that we need to cover in a year. Really, what we really need to have is a balance between the two. They should be integrated form and meaning. Of course, meaning for me needs to be really really fundamental. If the students don't understand what I'm talking about or the things that we're saying, then we're not going to be learning anything. We're not acquiring and we're not moving forward and they're not having fun. They're not enjoying themselves. Their competence is low. So that's really important, the meaning. But we can have little focuses on the form now and again in these pop up grammar type things like, well, yeah, normally it ends in an O for masculine and an A for feminine or, yeah, normally there's an S in the plural form and helping the learner to move forward with this. And as they get older and we go into years three and four and five and they're now choosing the language because they're really into it and they can speak it quite well or they've got a good foundation. Now we can really start to get into the metalinguistics, which is the pronoun, which is the subject pronoun, where is the subjunctive mood here? These type of things we can come to later in their language learning journey, not at the beginning, because we're just going to destroy their motivation. And essentially that quote about still having a grammar based syllabus and curriculum and that is the foundation and communication comes later that it's ill conceived. It's like we know all this stuff about research and we've researched it over and over again and we know that this is ill conceived, but we continue to do it. It's that Einstein quote of doing the same stuff over and over again and expecting different results. We're all, everyone's just suddenly going to be into this and they're going to love it and it's going to be great and we're going to have motivated students. But that is not what we see in the statistics, in the data, in the research. Students are dropping languages at alarming rates. Schools are closing down German and French and Spanish departments in the UK. Universities are closing them. So we're doing something wrong. Now, of course, there's a much bigger picture to this. There's the societal view of language and its interest and why we should learn other languages. But we don't have much control over that. You have control over your classroom, how you teach it, what you teach, the content. Do you give students autonomy? And that is where it needs to change. Because for me, listening to that quote about the horse and the cart, it really made me think of Ryan and Desi's 2020 update paper on intrinsic motivation and self-determination theory, because essentially in their conclusion, they say something almost identical. 
even the fact that we know with over 20 years of robust, far reaching research into intrinsic motivation, we know that these psychological needs of autonomy, competence and relatedness will bring us to more motivated individuals and help us to be more intrinsically motivated. Schools and educational establishments don't consider this in their planning and their policies. So and it reminds me of that approach. There's all this research. We're just ignoring it. That Maya Angelou quote, which I love, when we know better, we need to do better. And we do know better. There's so much research happened and has gone on. We know better now. And for me, it comes down to why would we teach in one way when we know that it's not going to reach all of the students. Yes, it might reach that 10% or 5% or 3% linguistically minded students like me and you who are listening to this. But it's not reaching the other 97% of the students who won't go on to study linguistics or be language teachers. But I would love them to be able to be confident enough to communicate in Spanish or French or German or whatever language when they meet someone from that culture. And I want those 97% of students to stay in my class and choose it the next year, even if they only do it for a few years, because you're getting a chance to open their minds to other cultures, other people, people who look and sound different. And you are reducing discrimination and bias and hate in the world. And I know I'm far reaching with this, but I believe it. The more students you can get to stay in your class every year, even though they may want to be chemists and pharmacists and biologists and business people, they may never want to use Spanish or French again. If you can keep them in your class because your class is interesting and motivating and fun and they feel like they're making progress, then you have more of a chance to reach inside and make sure they open their arms to other cultures and other people and understand difference. And that is, for me, is the key. So if there's two ways to the goal, there's path number one, loads of grammar based teaching, loads of drills, essentially very boring to most students. They don't have any autonomy, but a lot of them will still be successful in grammar based tests. Or we can go down the other way, loads of comprehensible input about them, lots of autonomy, make it compelling and we'll get to the same end goals. We see that over and over and over again here in my school and in other schools all around the world. CI teachers or those teachers who teach with mainly comprehensible input, they're still getting really great results. Their students are still writing and speaking in very accurate ways, but they've just gone about it a different way. And what I think it comes down to actually is often it's a lack of confidence or competence in the teacher's own ability. And I'm mainly speaking to all of you out there listening who are teaching a language which is not your native language, of which I am one. There are many of us. And I think what happens is, is that we maybe are worried that the input we're giving is not perfect enough or we're not good enough at it. So therefore, we go back to the things we know and that we know really well, which is grammar and linguistics and grammar tables. And we can teach that stuff really well because we know it inside out. But we get a little bit worried that is my accent good enough, whatever that means. Don't get me started on accents. But is my pronunciation going to be good enough? Am I going to know all these terms? Am I maybe I've given them the wrong phrases with my input? And we're worried about that stuff. So we go back to our other things. So I think the biggest thing you can do is try and keep your own language level as high as you can so that you have the confidence to teach in a comprehensible input way. You have the confidence to give the inputs and to take those questions. And you're confident enough to be vulnerable and say, you know what, this isn't my first language. I'm not sure what that word is. I need to go and look it up, but I'll find out for you. But most of us who are second language teachers, who are teaching languages that are not our native language, are teaching beginners and near beginners and some of us are teaching more advanced students. So certainly in those beginners and near beginners, we can give them the inputs in an interesting way. 
So I hope that sums up a little bit about implicit, explicit, meaning, form and my take on it. But really, I think it all comes down to a balance. I do not think that it is helpful for us as language teachers to camp on one side or the other and to to shout insults at the other side and go, how can you be teaching that way? Oh my gosh, that doesn't work. And then they shout back, how can you be teaching that way? I can't believe you're not teaching any grammar. That's terrible. It's a balance and we need to accept that there's a balance and there's a centre ground there somewhere. And we need to be respectful of our staff and our colleagues who are teaching in a way that maybe they're not sure of another way or they don't feel that confidence themselves. That is so important. But for me, there is a balance there. I don't just do no grammar. Of course, there's bits of grammar that come in, but they come in later. I don't just teach with implicit knowledge. There is bits of explicit knowledge. Of course, there are. There's a balance there. Now, I'm a bit more towards the implicit acquisition side, but it does not help, I think, to camp out on one side and shout at the other and say, you're not doing it right. That doesn't help anybody. We need to give each other confidence to try out new things and be the best teachers we can. Thank you so much for listening and you'll be excited to know that I have Dr. Florencia Henshaw, who I've talked about loads in this episode, appearing on the podcast. Well, I say appearing, she's not going to appear because it's not a video, but she will be speaking on the podcast very soon, getting into a bit more of this stuff and talking about the motivational aspects to do with second language acquisition. And yes, it's important we know the research around how languages are acquired in our brains and what happens, but it's also so important that we concentrate on the motivation and do the things that are interesting and compelling to our students. So, Guramila Mahagiv, thank you so much to everybody for listening. Huge thank you to my patrons. Please go ahead and look up The Motivated Classroom on patreon.com. If you'd like to support the podcast once a month, that would be wonderful. And if not, of course, no hassle, no problem whatsoever. Keep telling your friends it's all good. Share on Facebook and Twitter, hashtag Motivated Classroom. And of course, we finished today with our bit of Irish. Today was the word Ufosach, meaning awful. I hope you didn't think that this episode was Ufosach. <laughs> the Motivated Classroom podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter, and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer, The Motivated Classroom. Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow the Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.